Welcome. This is Karen Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet. All right, you all, I'm bringing back an old friend, and when I mean old, I'm not talking age. She's been a guest on the show. There was a period of time she was a guest co-host and did a series of shows, and we'll link all of those shows in the podcast notes for today's episode. I'm bringing back my friend, Karen Walrand, and she has come out with this new book, Radiant Rebellion, Reclaiming Aging, Practice Joy, and Raise a Little Hell. Here's the thing. I really deeply enjoyed the book. It helped me see things that I hadn't realized. And she will also share with you things that she didn't see Because what happens is once we can see, we can't unsee. And she will share her story here today in the show as well as in the book. So highly recommend Radiant Rebellion. I know there's a lot of books to read. This one was delightful, insightful, and it gave me a perspective and another window of possibility of looking through and being able to see things that some years ago or even before I read the book, I wasn't able to. So I hope you enjoy this. And you're also going to hear about a key learning and me needing to do it the quote right way, which is cloaking for perfection. I'll circle back with you after this interview with my friend, Karen Walman. Karen, welcome back to my show. It's such a delight to have you back. I'm thrilled to be here. It's been a minute and I'm so glad to be here. It's lovely to see your great face. Lovely to see you. So the last few years have been something. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Have they? laughs> has something happened oh my god <laughs> and remind me when was the hurricane what year was that 2017 oh so it's not just been the last three years it's been the last six years for you yeah pretty much i turned 50 and then stuff started happening <laughs> So for those that may not know, we should probably give them a little bit of backstory, what happened, like the hurricane. And everything. So in 2017, I turned 50. And six weeks later, Hurricane Harvey hit Texas. I live in Houston. It hit Corpus Christi, which is about 200 miles south of Houston. And then it turned toward Houston. And then it rained and rained and rained and rained and rained. And we actually lost everything in the storm. We lost cars, houses, clothes, furniture. We lost, we were down to... I mean, not everything might be an exaggeration, but probably 95% of what we owned is not an exaggeration. So it was pretty, pretty close. We had to start all over replacing clothes and furniture and a house and everything. So, and so we spent all of 2018 doing that and moved into our rebuild home at the end of 2018. 2019 was nice and quiet. And then of course, 2020, the world went indoors. So it's been a pretty insane few years for us. And not only that, you also live in Texas and you have a daughter. And so all of that, that brings, right? And COVID and the politics. We've been in it. (laughs) Yes. We've been in it. So how are you feeling? I've been trying to use the word full instead of busy 
where it makes sense. My life is full right now because even though I'm tired and I'm ready for some rest, I have nothing to complain about. Things are good. You know, we're in our home and we're safe. I just published a new book, which is great. My daughter is in college now, which is great. She's doing well. Life is full. It's full. I'm tired, but it's full. When you think back to like your 30-year-old self Mm. and you look at your life today, what does your 30-year-old self think? I think she would be really proud. I'm trying to think. When I was in when I was 30, I was single. I was practicing law. I was honestly pretty much doing everything I was supposed to do that you should do. I was, as they say, shitting all over myself, right? Like I was doing all the right things. Now I, you know, my I'm a creative. I'm not a lawyer in oil and gas. I write books and I coach and I'm married to a really great guy. When I was 30, I had was recently divorced. So I found a really great guy. I just celebrated 21 years married. And my daughter is awesome. I think she'd be really proud. I, I don't think, I think she'd be surprised. I think she probably would have thought that I would have been, I don't know, a general counsel of some huge Fortune 200 company by now. But I think she would know that I'm happier than I was then, for sure. For sure. What a great question. In, in your book, the latest book that you wrote, Radiant Rebellion, you talked about being divorced. And I didn't know mm-hmm. that. And you know, I've spent many hours talking, but I didn't know that until I read the book. But I think about so often, like when we go through that difficult life situation, right? And we're yeah. in it and it's messy and it's dark and it's so hard to see the light on the other side. And now look at you living in your light. Mm, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I will say that generally speaking, I'm a pretty optimistic person and always have been. You know, one of the my favorite things is it'll all work out in the end. And if it's not working out, it's not the end yet. So I, you know, I really sort of feel that. So yeah, I mean, you know, life is hard. Life lifes, right? Life is lifey. And I I really do kind of think that 90% of the work is is perspective and a little bit of faith, a little bit of trust that you have evidence to suggest that you've done difficult things in the past and there's no reason that would stop and one foot in front of the other, you know, like that's, I really do feel that. And I believe that deeply and it probably shows in the books that I write that that's what I believe. I, you know, I, it's so funny because, you know, this book that I just wrote, Radiant Rebellion is all about joyful aging. And, and I wrote it really sort of naively thinking that I was somehow wiser than most about aging because aging is not something that ever bothered me. And I was like, oh, I'll just write this book just saying that aging's no big deal, not realizing in the process that I would uncover what how rampant ageism is and why it's so difficult for people to embrace it. I've always suggested that, you know, I'm right now I'm 56. You know, I come from a line of long livers, right? Like I come from my grandmother was 102. You know, once I hit about like even 40, 45, I kept thinking, I have my life again to live, maybe more. And so much can happen in that time. And and the beauty of it is that I don't have to like learn how to speak or walk or anything, right? Like, like I've got all this experience and I still have my life again to live. So, you know, when I think about 
if I, let's say I live to be a hundred, right? So that's what, 44 more years of life. Like there's a lot that can happen, a lot of good and a lot of bad. I mean, I just really think the trick is, is being able to sort of trust that you're ready for whatever comes your way and one foot in front of the other and see what happens. So one of the things you just said was perspective taking. And one of the things that you wrote about in Radiant Rebellion was your journaling practice. Mm. And so is your ability to have the perspective come from your practice of writing and journaling? Partially. I mean, I, I became I started journaling pretty late in life and I sort of use it more often than not as a way to exorcise the stress, right? Like to sort of let go of, you know, monkey brain stuff. Like it really is sort of almost a, a form of meditation for me, the way I do it. I, I, it's not very formal or good grammar or anything. Mm-hmm. So it is a bit meditative. I would say probably more my gratitude practice is what helps me with perspective more than anything else is sort of really taking stock of in a very specific way of the good in my life every day. And and when I say specific, I don't mean like, oh, I'm grateful for my partner or I'm grateful for good health. Like I'm like I'm grateful that the cup of tea I just made is exactly how I like it. Like it like really, really getting very, very specific. And I think having a habit of that, I was, I actually was just, I did a speaking event this morning before we talked and I, t- I talked about it a little bit and it dawned on me that I've been having a daily gratitude practice for about half my life at this point. I started in my mid twenties. I've never, including when we lost everything in the storm, I've never not been able to come up with one good thing. And I think that's been probably the most critical part of perspective taking for me. I think as long as you can continue to find really, really good things and it's specific to your life, it's not just the, oh, I'm healthy or, you know, I'm grateful that for my kid, like, you know, something real, like I'm really specific when you have that sort of body of evidence of really good, it's kind of hard to be pessimistic. It, it really is like, because being pessimistic is counter to the evidence that you've collected in a lot of ways. So I think that's probably the biggest part. It makes me think when with what you just said, having that gratitude practice, and it makes me think of Kristen Neff's work in compassion, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Where it helps us open up our brains versus when we're pessimistic, we're in our survival brain, right? And that's yeah. fight, fight, or freeze. Versus the gratitude is being truthful and honest and recognizing, well, this cup of tea, the way that I want it, and it's so delightful. Or it's in this mug. I mean, that's, I love my coffee mugs. And, you know, and, and I get so excited about that. And that is so delightful. And it's something like when we, I think about the serenity prayer, which has helped me a lot the last few years, mm-hmm. that's something I can control is which mug do I choose to yeah. surround myself with? Yeah. And I think also, I mean, I think gratitude sort of gets a bad rap. Like people think of it as like, oh, yeah, be grateful, whatever. But the best way for me to have started it is to start it. I actually started in a very dark time, but even if you started in a very like light time, a very happy time, when you create that practice and it becomes second nature for really dark times. So the fact that I've been doing it for so long meant that when we were in the middle of losing everything, it was second nature for me to the last thing I did before I went to bed was let me just think about the day and what's the one good thing I can come up with. The beauty of it, so that's one, but the second thing is 
to that point of choosing, when you're used to doing it, you start to realize that really in the really crappy days, you're like, oh God, what am I going to say tonight? I don't have anything. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go get a cake pop or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take a hot bath when I get home. Or like you start to say, okay, I need to create something in order for me to have that thing that I can say at night. And that's really been one of the biggest lessons is not only that things happen all the time that are good, but that individually we have agency and power to create some good in our lives. And I think we can forget that when we're so busy dealing with everything that's coming at you, that it can be as tiny as, you know, making a great cup of tea or reading a poem or something before you go to bed at night just to calm yourself down or having that hot bath or thanking someone. I don't know about you, but when I thank someone, I feel just as good, maybe better than the recipient of the thanks. So just sending an email of thank you or something that helps sort of give you that little bit of boost and that you can add to the list when you go to bed at night. I just wrote a thank you card to somebody and I felt so much better after writing it right? Than how I was feeling. And I I didn't write it to feel better. But as you say this, I'm like, oh, yes, this happened this morning. One of my favorite people in the world, Nancy Davis Coe, she wrote a book called The Thank You Project. And she did it when she turned 50. And she was like, I'm going to write a thank you letter to the people and also experiences that have helped make me who I am. And she did all this research on it. And it turns out, of course, that expressing gratitude, not just like being grateful for your life, but even expressing gratitude has all these wonderful, like it, it's good for your health, it's good for your mental health, that your cognitive, like there's all these things. And so her book actually shared all that research and how you can start your own thank you project. And I think there is something to that. Like I think, of course, the recipient of a note of, of gratitude loves it, but there's something really sort of, you know, what are all those feel good hormones and everything that happen when you, when you express gratitude to somebody. I say that all the books I write really, and, and sort of what my thing is, is to convince people that we each have the power to really create and curate a light filled life. Like that to me is everything. And so, you know, I wrote a in the Lightmakers Manifesto, my book about joyful activism, like it talks about that. And in Radiant Rebellion, which is about joyful aging, it talks about that. Like that it's all this, you know, that thing that you think is really bad. Like activism can be really born of fury and anger and stuff like that. That's not entirely true. Like there's a lot of joy that can come from activism because you're you're tapping into a sense of purpose. And Radiant Rebellion was like, you feel like aging is probably not fun and it's decline and it's awful. That's actually not true. There's a lot of real joy to uncover. And so that's really what my work, I think, going forward is about. It's about that as dark as the world is, there's a whole lot of power that each of us have to create light, right? And to create good in the world. And we can't forget that because when we forget that, they win, you know? <laughs> you know? And this goes back to this gratitude practice that you have, because as you were talking about it, what resonated with me or the the piece that really landed for me as a great reminder is when you practice gratitude and all of a sudden when you think about, oh, what do I have to be grateful for today? And there may may not have been a focus on that. It's like, oh, I'm going to go take a bath, right? Because I want to make sure. So then we start to look for creating joy 
in our lives. And as Brene says, right, joy is the most vulnerable feeling to have, but Mm. we can start practicing creating joy and being able to have the capacity to enjoy it. And again, when we're talking about thank you notes or a bath, like those for the most part free, right? We're not, we're not talking like, oh, we need to have a trip to Europe. Yeah. Although that's good too. (laughs) (laughs) But absolutely. I mean, and I think, you know, that's one of the things that I think we think about when it comes to self-care and self-compassion. If we think of it in a very sort of shallow way, it's sort of like, oh, I'm really burned out. So I'm going to have a spa day and, you know, nothing. I love a spa day, but I think the secret to life is creating a cadence of self-compassion and self-care and actually just as like, this is the, my woo-woo-ness, but just as we think about like nature and we think about sort of the ebbing and flowing of tides or the moon phases or, you know, even our breath, like everything is cyclical. And I think many of us think that self-care, self-compassion is something you do when you're spent and you're exhausted and you're tired and you're like, oh, I need self-care for recovery. And I would say that because we are nature, we should do it as part of a cycle. It's sort of like, if you think of the way we breathe, we don't exhale and exhale to the point of having being empty of air, like the expulsion of all the air. We inhale before that happens, right? And there's a cycle to it. You exhale and there's a rhythm. And I think self-care, self-compassion, we should build that in. That is how we we operate optimally is by having that cadence. And that's not trips to Europe constantly or spa days constantly, right? That is sending out the thank you letter. That is the occasional hot bath. That is the find a great book to read and spend some time reading it. It's the expression of gratitude for your life before you go to sleep. That's really sort of the secret sauce, I think. And it took me half a century to figure that out. But I am far more selfish about doing things that care of myself that are free eight hours of sleep a night or whatever than I ever was when I was younger, when I was that 30 year old. Right. And it makes a difference. I am a nicer person when I have a practice of self-care. I'm a more effective person. I'm a more productive person. I'm able to be in my integrity more, right? Like all the good things that we want can come to us through that practice of before I'm completely spent, I'm going to take care of myself and then go back in. I'm going to gather the energy and go back in. And the way I do that is by taking care of myself and self-care. I think that the way I grew up and was raised and culturally programmed was achieve. If you achieve, then you're going to be safe. In, right? And so a lot of it was survival mode. And one of the things that I work with my clients who are high achievers, mm-hmm. right, is how are you resourcing yourself? Like if, and we use the metaphor of a mason jar. So are you filled up before you step out into the world? Right. right. And what is, what needs to be filled up? And and I think that's, that's the beauty of it is, is figuring that out. And like this fall, early in the fall, I would notice, I would lay on the carpet and look out the window and look at the trees. Like there was just something that felt so good for me. And mm. at, at first, Karen, I was like, what am I doing? I'm wasting a lot of time. Right, sure. <laughs> I got stuff to do. And finally, after just date, you know, it wasn't, I would be there, I don't know, 10 minutes, 20 minutes in the morning, right? And I don't have kids at home anymore because I'm an empty nester. So there's a lot of practical stuff that are out of the way. 
I was still meeting all the obligations and choices that I had. There was such a calming for me to sit there and look at the trees. And now on this side of it, I'm like, oh, that was part of me nourishing myself. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, 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 you know, what Krista Neff talks about with her self-compassion breaks, right? Like when you're in any form of suffering, whether or not it, you know, like something really serious or you stub your toe, like taking the moment to just stop, acknowledge difficulty and reminding yourself to go gentle with yourself. That's everything. Even when you're in survival mode, even when you are trying to put out all the fires, right? The stopping and breathing and pausing helps you center yourself so you can make the next right decision instead of the next reactive decision, mm-hmm. right? And so I say all the time that in the Lightmaker's Manifesto, I write about self-care at the very sort of as the last section of the book. And if I were to write it again, I might front load it, right? Like I might be <laughs> like, no, 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 let's do it the first because we tend to relegate that to the last thing we do. We work hard, we do that, we achieve. Oh, and then we can be rest and then we can take care. How about we rest, then we work hard, we achieve, and then we rest again, right? How about we like, we get like sandwich it and then we work hard and then we rest again. Like that cycle is, is really, I think, everything, even when you feel like it could be selfish for me to do this or I don't have the time to do this or like you do and you must, right? Not only you do, but you must, because it doesn't take a lot of time. It's the only way you're going to be able to do what you have to do, right? Is rest and self-care. It's so important. And I wish, again, that younger version of me who was so focused on the high achievement, who got through and got through, and then at some point, not a nice person to be around because I kept pushing things off, pushing things off, right? And now I can emotionally regulate so much better because I fill up that mason jar for me first so that that way I have actually something to pour into others. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, you know, it's so funny because like you, I have a daughter who's in college right now and, and I don't know, maybe it, it maybe in your twenties, like your, your late teens, your twenties, you just don't get it. Right. Like maybe it, those are one of those life lessons that you have to get with experience, but it is the one thing that I really try hard to impress upon her now. I'm like, get those habits because trust, once you're out in the world and working and taking care of a partner or taking care of your kids, like you're going to want to know how to do that. You know how it is. It's <laughs> youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I had this belief about sleep and it was something that my dad used to say, and he would be like, why would I sleep eight hours a day? I'm wasting a third of my life. Right. And it was wow. just those comments in the background. And I remember like blowing through college and, you know, as an athlete and a student, high achiever, right? Thinking, why do I need to sleep? That's just ridiculous. Well, one, my body was a vessel for competition. And then my wow. brain was a vessel for, you know, learning. Karen, the last five years, I have worked at unlearning those things that I did, those practices, behaviors, that mindset, yep. and how to sleep. And, you know, some of my health ramifications in 51, I'm sure are here because of the last 30 years of my life, right? It's not what right. I did yesterday. It's right. how I treated my life and my body for 30 years or 25 right. years, right? Right. Absolutely. And like, I don't mess around with sleep anymore. <laughs> like, like, do not, I get a good seven hours of sleep every night. And, and my family knows I'm like, no, 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 I'm sleeping. And if I'm going to, if I'm out till two, 
then do not look at me until 9.30 the next morning. <laughs> like, like that is how this is going to go. Come hell or high water, I'm getting my seven hours. And yeah, I mean, just everything gets better. Like everything. I have more energy during the day, of course, but also my mood is better. Like everything is better if I'm a little selfish, I think, you know? And it's interesting because you've used that word a lot today, the selfish. Like, again, I go back to that is what I need so that I can function mm-hmm. and not have those volatile moments, right? Where I just kind of lose my shit at <laughs> some point. It doesn't happen. Like I can, I, I'm really good at persevering. I've got grit. I can do hard things. But at some point, I'm going to be snarky. I mean, it's going to be to myself yep. and probably to the people I love. Yep. Right. Because we tend to do that. So I don't think it's selfish. Like I've had to reframe that of like, this is what I need so that I I can show up in the world. Right. Yeah. And I I honestly, I am, I am pro selfish. Let let me be very clear. I've got no problem with selfish. And here's why, because I think for most of us who I would say aren't crazy, right. Mm -hmm. Most of us like we're going to take care of our partners. We're going to take care of our kids. Our default is caring for other people, right? Mm-hmm. As is right, right? Like my default is, is my husband okay? Is my daughter okay? Are my friends okay? That's my default. Mm-hmm. So I am pro-selfish because I am never going to be selfish to the point where I forget those people. My default is taking care of those people. And I think that's true for all of us, right? Like I think like we are going to take care of the people we love. So if I stop for a moment and I'm going to be like, I'm not looking at you all right now, I'm looking at me. I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I really don't. I think we've been conditioned to think that that's a sinful thing or an evil thing. I don't think it is. I think it's an, it, a necessary thing, an important thing. It can only help us do what we default to anyway, which is care for other people. So I'm, I am very pro-selfish, personally. I say reclaim that word. <laughs> I, I appreciate that insight, right? Because I think because you default the other way, right? To taking care of others. And so for yeah. you to take on that identity of like, no, I need to remember to take care of me. Yeah. Right? yeah. Yes. Yeah. You have to do that. So I'm actually, I am pro-selfish. I, <laughs> I am like, I, I know it's not, it's not supposed to be, but I'm, I want to reclaim that word because I am never ever, and I'm sure that's true for most, most of us. I am never going to be selfish to the point, to the detriment of my friends or detriment of my family. Like that, how can you do that? You can't, you can't do that. I'm going to take care of my, like, I love them too much not to, but it's okay for me to love on myself every once in a while too, mm-hmm. right? To carve out some time. And for me, that's seven hours of sleep. Or for me, it's sometimes taking 20 minutes to journal, like just excusing myself and, or whatever, like, cause I'm still going to come back and make sure my daughter's okay. I'm still going to come back and make sure everything's cool with my husband. I mean, and nowhere was that ever more like, starkly apparent was during Hurricane Harvey, right? Because for sure, everything was about my family, right? Everything was about my family. I wanted them to be safe. If I did that to my own detriment, eventually it's not helpful to them. It's it's sort of like what I've been hearing a lot because I've been on book tour. So I've been talking a lot to a lot of different people. And I hear people say all the time, how can I take care of myself? How can I have a good time when Gaza, what's happening in Gaza is happening, right? My point is, how can you not? Like, if all you're focusing on is the, is the suffering and the pain of the world, 
that's just not sustainable. Like you are going, like you're going to crack. And then who does that serve? Like it's, I'm not saying ignore it. Like you, of course, should know what's going on in the world. And of course you should feel activated around making the world better. But you can't do that to the exclusion of your own self-care and of your own joy and your own cultivation of your joy and your family's joy. Joy and self-care is how you know what you're fighting for, right? Like it, it's a reminder of what it is that you're, you're fighting for and why you want to fight against injustice and why you want to fight for peace. It's, it's that reminder. And if all you do is get swallowed by despair and the horror, because out of some sense of guilt, that's a really painful way to live and helps absolutely no one. Well said. That's yeah. a good reminder for everybody, right? Because people do feel guilty of like, oh, if I take care of me, then that's hurting somebody else out there. But it's it's not. It's absolutely not. And it's a it's a good reminder. It's a good reminder of of what it is we love. I you know, I I have this, I'm looking for it right now because I want I want there's this really great quote from Will Durant. Have you heard this quote? Tell me the quote. So the quote is, civilization is a stream with banks. The stream is sometimes filled with the blood from people killing and stealing and shouting and doing things historians usually record, while on the banks, unnoticed, people build homes, make love, raise children, sing songs, write poetry, and even whittle statues. The story of civilization is the story of what happened on the banks. Historians are pessimists because they ignore the banks of the river. I love that quote because it is so easy to get our focus on the river, right? Mm -hmm. When really all this other good stuff is happening on the banks and we have the power to create some of that great stuff that's happening on the banks. And that's not to say you shouldn't keep an eye on the river, right? Because the river could break its banks and that would be bad, right? But also you want to keep focusing on the good. And I love that quote. And I think about that quote all the time when any guilt starts to creep in about well, how dare I feel good about this moment in time or whatever else when there's so much suffering in the world? Like, you have to, you have to create light. Like, you have to create light even in dark times. And it goes back to your point earlier of creating the light, so filling yourself up mm-hmm. so that then you can go and be an activist. Absolutely. And write your congressperson and march in the streets and give money and run for office and like for sure right like like it i don't want anybody to ever say that i said ignore the tough stuff like you can't right like if you if you have any compassion in your heart you can't ignore the tough stuff you also can't ignore the good stuff and you can't ignore yourself like then the bad guys win like i really believe that then the bad guys win what we have to do is create the good stuff take care of ourselves and that gives us the power to go fight and to go change and to go do everything else. Yeah, for sure. So Karen, as we get close to running to the end, why'd you write Radiant Rebellion? <laughs> well, I wrote it, honestly, I wrote that, I wrote that book in 2022. And, and I mean, it's Reclaim Aging, Practice Joy and Raise a Little Hell. That's the subtitle. And in 2022, I was turning 55. My marriage was turning 20. And my daughter turned 18 and graduated high school, and went off to college. And I would tell people about this big year that I was going to be having. And it was very clear that people were only happy about the marriage. Like I would say, I'm turning 55. Ooh, how are you doing? You feel double nickels. That's 
You all right with that? Or, oh, my daughter's graduating high school. Oh, how are you doing, mama? Empty nest. You know, like, and, and especially with that one, I was like, that was always the goal. Like, the goal was <laughs> to raise an adult so that she felt independent, right? Like, that's that. I feel great about that. That was the whole point. And so I really sort of wrote the book, you know, in this sort of smug way of thinking, oh, guys, you all are wrong. It's awesome. And what ended up happening, of course, when I wrote it is I realized, oh, not only is ageism a thing, it was created by capitalistic patriarchy. We've been steeped in it from childhood. And it's no wonder people hate aging because it literally is a construct. And People didn't always hate aging, right? Like that was literally created by by government and industry and everything for us to buy things and feel bad about ourselves so that the industry could create money. And it starts from the moment we're told about the old evil hag in our fairy tales to the social media to the anti-trillion dollar unregulated anti-aging industry that targets 24-year-olds. Like that's this target age, right? To all the way through. And so it became sort of a battle cry, right? Like once I, I knew the history of how this all came, I tell people it was like Neo taking the red pill. Like I couldn't unsee it. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to write the book so that other people would take the pill with me and also realize how much power they had in creating what their future years would be like. Like it, it, it doesn't have to be the stereotype and actually is often not the stereotype, but we've been sold that bill of goods into believing that's what it is. Yeah. So you all need to read the book because there she goes into some very specific insights in there about even just the questions that we ask ourselves, right? Because it's so programmed and how we just were raised in, in not seeing our own internalized ageism. One of the people I interview is an amazing woman. Her name is Ashton Applewhite, and she's an anti-ageism activist. And one of the things that she said, because I, I, I interviewed her and I was like, oh, I, I don't have ageism. Like, I'm awesome. And I think I'm great. And also I am a lawyer and like I did discrimination cases. So how could I be? And one of the things she said was the traps we get into is how we use the words young and old, for example. And I said, well, tell me more about that. She goes, well, I hear people say all the time, I don't feel old. And I said, yeah, I say that all the time. Why is that bad? I don't feel old. She goes, well, I suspect when you say that, what you're saying is, I don't feel unsexy or I don't feel invisible. And I said, sure. And she goes, well, I don't know about you, but I felt unsexy or invisible when I was 13. Those aren't age-related words. And it was like, oh, like we use old as shorthand for bad and young as shorthand for good. And we don't even realize we're using it. And, you know, as they say, words have power. Like you start saying that stuff, you start to believe that stuff. And so another great example she says is like, you know, she was going to her doctor and she uh, she had a a bum knee and the doctor said to her, well, you know, you're getting older. So that's what happens. And she said, well, my other knee feels fine and it's the same age as this knee. So how about we figure out what's going on with this knee, right? As opposed to dismissing it for age. And I thought that, I mean, that's, and how many times have we gone to doctors and they're like, oh, well, you're getting older. That's what you're supposed to expect. And we take that and are resigned to it as opposed to, well, that, that may be true, but that doesn't mean we don't treat it. That doesn't mean we feel figure out what's wrong. That doesn't mean that I should live in pain, you know, and sort of this challenging constantly these ages. Oh, you look good for your age. Like, what does that mean? She looks great for her age. And it feels like a compliment, but it kind of isn't. And 
fact that we all age at different rates anyway. So what does that four-year age mean? Like 56 on me is going to look different to 56 on many other people, depending on their lives and how much stress they've had in their lives and how much access they have to medicine that they've had in their lives. You know, like there's so many different things that happen. And so we have to uncouple sort of the assumptions that we make based on the number of years somebody has been on the planet and figure out what does that mean for us and how am I contributing to that? And that that is the rebellion, right? Is being able to uncouple those things. So going to the book, the question I'm going to ask is mm. who did you become as you wrote the book, right? Because you said you thought you had this down. You were yeah. really good about your age. So who did you become? Yeah, that's a great question. Wow, that's a good question. I, I became a lot less judgmental, I think, for one thing, because like one of the things that I talk about a lot is like I, I stopped dyeing my hair. And I think a lot of people think that by writing this book, I'm saying, you know, ditch the hair dye, ditch the makeup, ditch the injectables, whatever. And I'm, I'm actually far less judgmental than I was when I wrote the book, uh, before I wrote the book, because now I'm like, I would never tell anybody to do that because now I know how deeply ageism is and how there are real consequences to making some of those decisions, right? Like people who go gray, I have friends who were like in media and if they let themselves go gray, they would get fired. I've had single friends tell me if I went gray, like I would never get a date on the apps because people I, like I would be precluding myself from real opportunities for connection. So I'm far less judgmental about the decisions that people make as, as they approach their aging, for sure, because I get it, right? That there's a, lot of, there's a lot of consequences about it. But I'm also a little bit more humble about what it means to get older and, and so what the, just basically what the stressors are for getting older. But I'm also more convinced that I'm right, that it doesn't have to be the way the world tells us it's supposed to be. Like now that I know, I suspected that that was true, but now I've got data because of the book. I've got data that says you really are being sold this bill of goods and that you can choose not to buy into it or at least understand the consequences if you do and then make a decision one way or the other about, well, you know, this is either the world that we're living in and I have to do that, make that compromise, or you can say, no, I totally reject it. And so that's been the biggest thing is I've sort of become more discerning about what's real and what's fake. Mm, Your eyes are more wide open, it sounds like. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So before we go, I have one last question. Okay. And it's a little bit selfish on my part because Karen, reading your book, I'm like, Okay, I need to go back to my journaling practice. And you, and if you guys don't know, Karen has these beautiful journals with amazing handwriting. She'll take a photo of it, put it up on her social media. And I'm like, so envious, right? What is your journaling practice? Is it messy or is it always beautifully handwritten? That's such a hard question. So my journaling practice is I make marks in my journal every single day of some kind. It could be a, a paragraph. It could be pages. It could be outlining plans for the new year. It could be whatever it is. Now, I will say, like, my journals are pretty. I will say that. But I will also say that I am one of those kids who changed her handwriting all the time when I was a kid. Like, I was, I have always been obsessed with sort of hand lettering and handwriting my entire life. So I will admit to you that if you look at my journals, they appear very pretty because it's been an obsession of mine 
forever. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually late to journaling. Like I was a kid who doodled really fancy things and I would change like, oh, I'm going to start writing with slanted words to letters, you know. But that said, even though I'm a writer, like grammar is not something I stick to. Spelling is not something I stick to. Like it's pretty, but you might not be able to read it or <laughs> it might, you know. But it, the most, the, the big thing is I fill in my journal at some point. Every day. I, my husband bought me a sketchbook and during the pandemic and I started doing daily sketches. And now I, I usually include a sketch in my journal. They're awful. I'm not an artist, right? I mean, I'm not a, a drawing artist. And so if there are people who actually have the skill of drawing probably would be like, oh, Karen, you know, never show that. <laughs> that's not good. But it's not for me, right? And that's the thing about journals. Like, they're not really for everybody. Yes, occasionally I, I, I share my journal, but that's because I write about journaling. And so it feels weird not to share if that's what I'm evangelizing around. But journals are for yourself. Like, they're, like nobody has to see your journal. My family certainly doesn't look at my journals. Like, they don't see it. And they would be bored if they saw it. They'd open it up and like, oh, a shopping list. Wow, mom, that's really deep, <laughs> right? Like, there's, no, there's really nothing really that exciting in it at all it's just marks it's just marks every single day and so it sounds like your shopping list it's it's everything in that journal everything yes i handwrite something every time sometimes it's a thought a deep thought not rarely is it a deep thought it can be anything it can be a poem that i read or a quote that i came across or sometimes i like we're out to because i keep it with me everywhere so we're out to dinner and you and I are out to dinner, Corin, and you order a great bottle of wine, and I want to remember the bottle of wine, right? Like, it's just, I make a mark in my journal every single day. That's it. That is my practice. Okay. Do you have, like, a set time, or just... I used to do it in the morning before I started my day, and that worked for a while because it would clear my head before I went in. Now, I've sort of switched, and I do it at the end of my day, just to sort of... Like, I, I used to have everything in one journal. Now, I have sort of two journals. I have one that I write a paragraph of what happened during the day just as a record of the day. And then I have another one that's sort of my working journal that l literally I'll be like, oh, that's a great essay idea. And I'll jot, jot it down. Or a friend sent me actually a slide deck on some, something that was really interesting. And so I, I took notes on the slide deck because I knew I wasn't going to keep the slide deck, but I would keep, but, but it was important enough. Sometimes I'll be in front of the television and I'll be scrolling Instagram and sometimes people share really cool quotes on the Instagram. So I try to hand letter a quote and literally I'm watching like law and order reruns and hand lettering a quote in it. It's not really formal. The paragraph at the end of the day is, for, is more formal. Like I try to do that at night, but other one is just, it's just whenever I feel like making a mark in the book, I make a mark in the book. It's not a it's not a thing. Sometimes I'm in a meeting and I'll doodle in it. Like it, it doesn't actually have anything and I'll just doodle in that thing. Okay. Two more questions on that. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> one, one is, do you go back and reread your journal? Never. As a matter of fact, during Harvey, I lost 10 years worth of journals and everybody was like, oh, your journals. I was like, I have no idea. Like, I mean, let, let me not say never. If I have taken, like, like in, in the middle of writing a book, and I write, like I might write ideas for like a chapter or something like that. So obviously I'll go back and get it to write the chapter or I'll start writing a chapter and I'll do that. But generally speaking, once I get to the last page of a journal, I just have them in a drawer, but, but I never 
and never go back and read them. I have this sort of romantic idea that one day my great, great, great grandchild will be in an attic somewhere and come across it and they'll be like, oh, this is what life was like during a global pandemic in the, you know, the 2020s, right? Like, how interesting. Um, so, you know, but I, I don't ever, and I've never felt a loss because of the journal. I, I, there's just, it's just marks. It really is just sort of marks of the journal. And then my last question is yeah. the gratitude practice. And do you write that in your end of the day or is that something you think about? It is more often than not something I think about, but they do. It obviously does show up at the end of when I mean, in that daily sort of paragraph, I'll hand letter as like as a headline, something that happened during that day that sort of exemplifies that day. So like today might be podcast with Corinth, right? Will be the headline. And then I'll just fill a chapter. And oftentimes, like when I'm thinking at the end of the night, what am I grateful for? having done a podcast with Corin will probably come up, but it's not necessarily what happens in the journal. Definitely before I go to sleep, sort of as part of a prayer, right? Like at the end of the night is how I do my gratitude. Well, thank you because my listeners are like, what's the right way to do it? There is no right way. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there is no right. Make a mark. Make a mark <laughs> in your journal. I will say, I, let me just say this. If there is a right way, I would say handwriting it. Don't do it on an app. Don't do it on your computer. There is something quite magical about slowing down and using your handwriting to write your thoughts. Like I type very quickly and I can type before I'm finished thinking. And so that is the, but that is like my big rule is if you're going to try a practice, get a pen and paper to do it. Doesn't matter what pen, doesn't matter what paper, but do that. Don't, don't use an app or don't use your computer. That's my rule, but otherwise no other rule. <laughs> so you all, we have permission to do it. However supports us. Yeah. And definitely go read Radiant Rebellion to reclaim aging, practice joy, and raise a little hell. Karen, thank you so much for being a guest and coming back on my show today. Oh my gosh, it's always an honor. Thank you so much for having me. Isn't Karen fantastic? I love sharing her with you all. I love how she sees the world, her perspective, and how she's able to be vulnerable and own her parts of like, she didn't think that there were certain things that she was ageist about. And then as she was doing this book, she realized and she learned. And that goes into something about a key learning that I had back when I recorded this show, which was well over a month ago. It was about six weeks ago when we did the interview. We were both trying to get it done before the end of the year and the holidays. And I talked to her about journaling because I've known for years, Karen is this amazing journaler. If you go to her Instagram, you'll see sometimes she'll share pages and I'm like, oh, that's so beautiful. I can't do it because I can't do it the way Karen does it. And then it stops me, right? I don't do it because of that voice inside of me. I was like, well, it's not good enough, right? That's the voice of shame. And instead, the gift that she gave me was when saying there is no right way and this is the way she does it now. And she gets to make the own, her own rules. That's aligned with my own mission of being the leader of my life, standing with ourselves, not against ourselves right? And that's the work I do with my clients as well. And hearing there's not one way or there's this most efficient, productive way to do it gave me permission because of that common humanity of like, oh, there's lots of different ways to do it. It gave me permission to start writing. And the beauty of writing, it's like with reading or listening to these podcasts. 
it becomes the windows of possibility, right? When we read books, we start to see things that we may not have been able to see. When we listen to podcasts, we start to hear things that give us frameworks to this invisible world that sometimes we don't see, the illusions, right? What's really going on? And when we write, it gives us the ability and the space to take a look at what's going on inside of our beautiful brains. It's really messy in there. (laughs) I know. But being able to journal and write things down has been another skill set that has really helped me get more clarity and insight of what's going on with me. It's not about doing the right or wrong, or is it going to get graded, right? Because that's so deeply ingrained in so many of us of, oh, it's got to be really great. This is for me. And as Karen said in the interview, when she writes, she doesn't ever go back and look at it. It's about getting the information out and the thinking that comes along with it. So this is another opportunity to incorporate the self-awareness with the practice of journaling. And that's something that I've been practicing since I've interviewed her about six weeks ago. And it's been quite insightful. And I've done journaling on and off for years. It's been a fantastic tool. So my invitation for you is take what you need from today's show, one thing, and go and practice it, test it out, and see what you discover for yourself. All right, I'm smiling big for you. Hey there, before we go, I have a question for you. Have you subscribed to the show yet? This is an awesome opportunity for you to preserve your brain juice. I love the fact that I can subscribe to podcasts and television shows and they go straight to my iPhone or they go straight to my DVR and then I don't have to worry of, oh no, especially with television shows. Did I hit record? Is it going to be there? Or now do I have to watch it on demand and go through all the commercials? So go and hit the subscribe button. There's a link in the show notes and that will ensure you that you never miss a show and you can also save your brain juice for other things in your life. There's way more important things, but you and I will still be connected because the show will be waiting for you in your phone. Go to the link in the show notes, subscribe to the show so you can automatically get all the shows to your phone. On a lake, she is dreaming. She is drifting, never been so wild.